Welcome back to another episode of Coming Out Black. Today, Courtney sits down with Pep Felon, a proud Koori woman and lesbian who currently works as a researcher at the University of Melbourne. Today, the two of them will speak about the Indigenous response to COVID-19, as well as queer Indigenous research and university experiences and challenges. We really hope you enjoy this episode, so I'll hand over to Courtney to jump right in. Good afternoon, Pep. Pep, is it short for something? Yeah, it's my nickname. Uh, My name is Pieta, but um, I've had the nickname Pep since I was a tiny, tiny kid. My cousin couldn't say my name, so it was Pep and it's been Pep ever since. Yeah, true. Well, where are you from, Pep? Well, I'm I'm living in Melbourne currently, but my family's from up Riverina region of um, southern New South Wales. Um, but living on Wurundjeri country and loving it, and um, I've been here my whole life. Oh, cool. So then, obviously, you're um, also in the lockdown, as I am. How are you finding it so far? Um, it's not too bad, you know. Um, I've gotten a hell of a lot of stuff done, but uh, well, particularly in the first six weeks, I think since then it's been a little less uh, productive. But um, yeah, not too bad. I think um, from a I suppose a disease management component. Uh, it's really important that we're in lockdown, and uh, we, you know, we're seeing the numbers come down. So that's all we can hope for, and we're all playing our part in that. So yeah, that's awesome. So I mean, because we're coming out black, um, I think it's obviously important to ask you how how you identify yourself. Yep. So uh, I identify as a lesbian. Um, I think like a lot of people, when I first figured out that I was same-sex attracted, I thought that I was bi, uh, particularly because I figured it out while I actually had a long-term boyfriend. But um, I've come to realise that, you know, for me, um, for me, it was a transitional thing that growing up, and I'm really actually quite pissed off about it, actually, because I didn't realise that there was any other option. And I'm, uh, you know, growing up in a heteronormative society is really a, quite a damaging thing for queer people because we actually don't have any representation of anything else. Uh, I mean, I'm 42, so I'm a little bit older. And back in the 90s, you know, 96 which was when I was in year 12 you know I'd I'd had same-sex attractions but I I didn't really think that it was anything yeah I know even in Tasmania at that particular time homosexuality was illegal yeah for me I happened to come to the enlightenment that I was a lesbian at 18 on the way to an anatomy exam which was really a strange experience my first year (laughs) um, doing a applied science program Mm -hmm. hit me like a a bolt of lightning on the train on the way there and um you know I got on the train straight and I got off the train a lesbian so (laughs) a really bizarre experience but um yeah I mean I've I've thought about it a lot and in the last few years I've gotten really super pissed with heteronormativity because I've realized that for so much of my life, I didn't know who I was because of heteronormativity. Yeah. And I just want to, like, I really like the way you use the word enlightenment. Like, I think that's a good thing because I think sometimes, like, I think the way even I talk about it, I was like, like, like realizing or coming to terms with or, um, and I think that almost makes it sound like quite a negative thing, like almost like that you, you, you're getting over the fact that you're gay. And I think that's, 
that's actually a really beautiful way to sort of put it and almost a way more positive one because that's how it should be talked about in the enlightenment but also what happened on the train like uh, it was a really interesting story um and i don't want to bore you with all the details but um I had gone to primary school. Um, there was a particular person at primary school that I was mates with at primary school um, who went to a different secondary school and we used to see each other sort of playing tennis. I used to play a lot of tennis. Um, that should have been like signpost number one. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, we just got chatting. Um, I'd had um an uncle that had passed away who I was very close with he was like my second dad um and my cousin who'd passed away he was like my brother um she'd just had her mum pass away we were just um chatting on the platform actually we saw each other we said hello we just got chatting um train was late so we just kept chatting and got on the train and it wasn't that I was attracted to her but something about that conversation something about um that experience of opening up to someone like that I'm not sure what it was but yeah it's like three stations in I it was like a bolt of lightning came out of the sky and hit the top of my head and I was all of a sudden realized oh my god you're gay <laughs> so it was yeah. a bizarre experience um it was you know they talk about epiphanies and um I know what an epiphany is because that day I had one yeah wow and then so what did you do with that information I suppose uh well what every young woman probably in a long-term relationship with a man does <laughs> that particular time and I'd been with my boyfriend at the time since I was about 16 so I was now oh how old was I uh coming up to 18 and a half I just thought maybe I was by and yeah so I just sat on it for a long long time but um it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and there just came a point where uh I just couldn't um I don't know I couldn't reconcile myself being with that person as much as I loved him it was a a friendship and I just knew that uh I knew that that wasn't who I was but it it took me a long time to come to terms with it I also grew up Mm. in a really quite um catholic family um not that not that I was catholic I I was you know even since I was a kid hated church didn't want anything to do with church I was even very aware even as a you know seven-year-old um that what they said and what they did were very contradictory to church so um as soon as I was 13 my parents had said well when you're 13 you can decide whether you want to go to church or not the day I turned 13 I said I don't want to go to church so um (laughs) Yeah, it was it was difficult because my grandfather was incredibly Catholic. Um, all my dad's family are incredibly incredibly Catholic, and um, so it took me a long time. Even though I've got two gay cousins, I've got a um, an older uh, gay cousin, and I've also got a female cousin or a, my my cousin Chris, who's the same age as me. Um, she came out as lesbian probably a little bit before I did, um, and yeah. it didn't go very well for her. Yeah. Okay. And so did that sort of create um, a bit of like self-conflict for yourself, whether or not to come out or were you definitely confident by then to do so? Or what was that like coming out for you? Um, Well, you know, like a lot of people who come out, I actually thought that I was going to have an easy ride because my parents were really super supportive of my cousins. Mm -hmm. Um, But obviously, uh, 
things may change when it's your own child. And my parents had a lot of difficulty coming to terms with that. And obviously I've come to understand that that's a lot of internalized shame. That's also how heteronormativity has impacted upon them. Um, They thought that, you know, all their hopes and dreams for me had been dashed and that I had fundamentally changed as a person, whereas this is a person I've always been. It's just I'm more open about it now. Um, So it was really hard for me. I went through a lot of, um, yeah, it was a very difficult time, probably a very difficult time for about five years. Um, I, when I was 22, got my first girlfriend and we were together for 17 years. So, um, yeah, I know it's a long time. Um, and the funny thing is it's five years to move in together. So there you go. That that breaks that fallacy, doesn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, broken the fallacy that you were together for 17 years as well, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, we, um, we broke up, what, the end of 2017, which was obviously pretty traumatic for me. It wasn't my decision. But at the end of the day, I, I trust that everything happens for a reason. And I've actually become... Um, I suppose a stronger, more staunch person because of that experience. Uh, and I've got a, a beautiful new partner now. She's a Thoroughwall woman and, um, yeah, really enjoying life. I love that. Um, so let's talk about what you do uh, for a living now, which is, this is actually probably one of the coolest things that have happened since we've started this um, online community and podcast is that you actually um, message us. You're like, hey, I've written this article. Check it out. And I was like, oh, my God. I love you. Let's go. Um, um, but actually, you know, like I want to promote it, but then I was like, actually, well, who better to talk about it than the person that actually wrote it? So, um, but let's start at the beginning. Why did you get into this field of work and probably more so what do you do and, and why do you do it? Yeah. So I am, um, I'm currently working at the Poach Centre for Indigenous Health at the University of Melbourne. Uh, I've been there for a couple of years, almost a couple of years now, um, and I specifically work as the alumni development manager, working with the Poach Leadership Fellows, who are incredible Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health professionals of lots of different uh, disciplines and persuasions. And my job with them is to um, work with them with the leadership program, particularly around health leadership and sort of increased capacity and development around um, leadership, networks, influence, impact, and those sort of things. My professional background, I actually did 20 years in neuromusculoskeletal work, and then I transitioned into, did a Master's of Rehabilitation Counselling and specialised in psychological injury, so post-traumatic stress disorder, compassion fatigue, vicarious traumatisation. And I suppose all of those things sort of come together. I was asked by work to do some writing, um, to put some information out there and to, I suppose, report around Indigenous leadership as it relates to um, COVID-19, to the current pandemic. And the first article I wrote was um, published in Uni Melbourne's magazine called Pursuit, called Doing It Themselves. It was picked up by ANSOG, Australian and New Zealand School of Governance. And also I co-wrote a piece with Professor Fiona Stanley, Professor Sandra Eads. Wow. Fran Eads. And that went off and was published with The Lancet, which is a sort of a huge medical publication, which has received some really great feedback on how Indigenous leadership is, you know, doing so, so well 
when it comes to COVID. Um, in, Indigenous leadership in this country has dealt with COVID better than any other place in the entire world. So, yeah, really. Yeah, it's it's absolutely like the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership in this country, health leadership, is the whole world is jealous really about how um, the orgs, health professionals, etc., are dealing with COVID here because we've had zero deaths, a very very minute amount of infections, and everything has been because there's been this um, focus on self-determination when it comes to um, health practice. Yeah, so. that's awesome. So is that is that more so on like leadership from our national health organisations or is that, yeah? Uh, it's leadership across the board. So it's the health organisations, it's the um, it's health professionals, it's academics and researchers, people in policy. So across the whole board, um, the health orgs got on to work quickly. They shut down communities really quickly because of Indigenous leadership in particular communities saying, hey, we need to shut our communities down to make sure that this virus doesn't get in. The orgs putting out all the right messaging, all the right PPE equipment being distributed, all the right all the right messaging from, um, you know, health organisations um, and health professionals and also the dissemination of really important health guidelines across the community and translated into language and all that sort of stuff so it's been just incredible to see the response to see how successful that uh, aboriginal and torres Strait islander um, health orgs professionals academics and policy makers have been yeah and like i think it almost sort of really hones in how important and almost kind of like well yeah the word priceless probably doesn't really work here either but like how important it is that we continue to keep empowering our Indigenous academics. Do you think, um, just from from your experience in the field, do you think there is enough um, Indigenous academics pursuing careers in academia? Um, No. And obviously there's a lot of barriers to why Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people find it difficult to go to university and to also pursue pathways through university into academia. It can be related to geography, situation, um, being close to family, um, it could be related to having to take care of family, look after children. There's a whole range of barriers that prevent Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from accessing universities. Um, but those people who do actually go and who get through are doing just the most incredible work. I mean, if you look at Professor Sandra Eads, She's just been appointed the very first Aboriginal dean of a medical uh, faculty in the country. Just an incredible woman, so humble and so brilliant. And, yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough to work with her at University of Melbourne. And, you know, you could pick up the phone and call her. You could, you know, email her and she'd get back to you. There's there's so much collegiality, I suppose, um, at universities where everyone's trying to help one another get through because we understand how difficult it is. Yeah. Do you think that's something that, that um, comes from, from being a blackfella, um, you know, that, that you know, we win, we all win sort of and looking after each other and, and nurturing each other. Do you think that's unique to Indigenous academia or is it kind of more of what happens when you're in, in this field in general? I don't know. Academia is a difficult space. Um, there's a lot of politics there. But I think everyone sort of understands that um, it's so difficult for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at universities that 
uh, everyone needs to lift each other up. Uh, we all need to get through together. Um, there's also a lot of people who are first in family. There's a lot of people who are the first person in their family to get a degree, the first person in their family to get a master's, the first person to go do a PhD or to go into yep. academia. Um, and it's funny, there's a really great article actually released by Amy Tunig um, only in the last few days on Indigenous women's experiences at university. And I highly recommend everyone go check out Amy Tunig's uh, Twitter page and try to find that article on her Twitter page. I think you'll find it incredibly enlightening, but also unsurprising. Um, you know, there's so many incredible people, but the support systems aren't there. Um, I'm working yeah. with um, one of the women at University of Melbourne at the moment. We're trying to get a Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander person in to be a counsellor across the university for students and for staff because there is no culturally appropriate counselling and mental health services anywhere in the university. Now, you would yeah. think that with the numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students that they want to get in, they want to attract more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff at universities, they would provide those supports to be able to make that happen, um, to provide people assistance and support and to be able to, to retain people who do go there. But the supports aren't there. Um, the only, um, what's the word, the only measures that they have is getting more numbers in, not how do we sustain it, not what do we need to put in. And I think that there's a, an unrealistic understanding of what it actually takes to reduce barriers for attraction, attracting students and staff, and actually sustaining people uh, there within, um, across their education and also as a professional. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, like, I, I can only reflect on my own experience as a, a university student, but like a lot of the people that I studied with um, who were mob, um, we had an incredible Indigenous support unit um, and essentially what it, what it was was um, some aunties essentially and um, it was a beautiful family space and we all had to really look after each other and we, I went to a pretty small uni but um, when, it, when it works, it works really well but you can tell when it doesn't, it's just so poor and I think what you're saying is completely like valid. I think like the it's not getting them necessarily in the door. It's keeping them there for so like, cause university is a long um, period of time and you have experiences of, you know, um, not doing well in subjects or, you know, having family pressures, financial pressures. It costs a lot of money to go to university, particularly if you're trying to support yourself and your family, it's, it's really difficult. And, um, you know, amongst other things like not having a cultural, culturally safe university, not having anything to, um, you know, you walk into a room and you don't see anything that you can relate to in the room or anything um, in the education that's being provided. I've I've seen, um, I've got mates that go to other universities that had, have been um, racially profiled in their lectures. They're like, oh, we're talking about Indigenous studies and they'll yeah. literally just point at you know, an Indigenous person in the room and say, well, what's your experience been like? And they're like, well, how do you even know I'm Indigenous? Like... <laughs> Firstly, and secondly, um, you know, this is just ridiculous. And I think um, 
particularly in health, it's been a really interesting one um, that I've sort of seen across the years. You, you see opinion pieces written and um, people having poor experiences or even dropping out of university courses because they've been actually, yeah, um, discriminated against due to their Aboriginality. So what do you think kind of needs to be done, not just in our university sector, but even probably at a larger scale of, um, you know, how we can support um, students on placements and things like that. What do you think is is missing right now and, and what, what, what would you see the perfect world being? Yeah, I mean, this isn't my field of expertise and there's certainly people that would be able to speak to this much more clearly. You know, people like Stacey Coates from Western Sydney, uh, Professor Michelle Trudgett from Western Sydney, they're doing some really great work in this space. Um, looking at Amy Tuning's work, um, there's a lot of work out there that's actually, um, you know, there's a lot of research that's out there and people working specifically in this space that uh, they're looking to how they can support both students and staff more appropriately. I think what I can contribute to the conversation would be that um, it's really critical for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to be able to go to university. So the supports need to be there the barriers need to be removed um, whatever the barriers are and there are a considerable amount of barriers it's interesting I, I watched a presentation just yesterday by um, Dr Nikki Moody who's at the University of Melbourne and she was talking really specifically about this um, and suggesting that with the changes in the way that um, course fees have gone up or down in the last change, that almost every single Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander student uh, enrolled in courses where the course fees have gone up considerably because most Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students are at university not just for themselves but for their family. They're there for altruistic, altruistic reasons. Yeah, To be able to bring that knowledge back to community and to be able to use that knowledge to better the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, so if you get a chance, again, to have a look at that um, presentation, and you can do that through, I think it's um, the Indigenous Settler Relations at University of Melbourne. If you just get onto that, you'll be able to have a look at the presentation. There's yeah, much can... out there being done, um, but it seems that all universities care about is getting people in and that's it. Like where is all the supports to help sustain people while they're there and where are the, what's the word, where are the equitable supports? If you have a look at, I probably shouldn't say this, uh, I'll just say it in generally <laughs> relating to universities. A lot of universities actually have mental health support systems for international students but no mm. such thing for Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander students. So yeah. you're looking after international students who bring in the big dollars, but when it comes to First Nations people looking after them from a mental health perspective, social and emotional wellbeing, there is no support there. Those people have to access general support services rather than culturally appropriate and culturally safe support services. Yeah. And I didn't mean to, but I've gotten a little bit wild right now because like I completely <laughs> agree with you. And it's also like, um, but like even thinking about it too, like, you know, they'll get mob in, like, you know, they'll and they'll be like, Yeah, like, oh look at us, we've we've got, you know, this like X amount of indigenous um 
what do you call them? Uh, new students or whatever. Um, they'll they'll fly that. They'll they'll put um, you know indigenous men and women on their on their posters and all that. But then when it comes to practice, I remember like well for example I won't use my own university but others that I've had experience in. You get one slide um, in a one lecture across your whole um, bloody university experience on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures, even, no matter like you know what uh, you study. And yes, some some universities are, are, are definitely improving, and it's great, but it's kind of almost too late, like because all the people that already had those um, experiences in in uni are all in our health industries or, or in all of our industries. Um, and they have had no access to be able to be educated because, like, when else are you going to get educated in this sort of stuff unless your workplace is actively pushing it uh, or unless you're interested or you have a reason to? People don't. So then that also creates another level of barrier just for even being in the workplace um, as a young, yep. you know, Indigenous graduate. Exactly. <laughs> It's also interesting, and I know I presented at well, I presented at Lowitchi Institute last year at the um, the health conference, specifically looking at elevating intersectional uh, identity narratives in the Aboriginal health space, because so much of the um, the work that's done on Aboriginal health is from just a um, a racial lens. There's no discussion around, you know, people's a bit disability identities or their LGBTIQ identities um, which obviously you know there's there's been reasons for that and probably most of it's got to do with resourcing um, but I think there comes a time when um, different elements of people's identities and experiences really need to come to the fore which is why I love what you're doing because all of a sudden there's this whole new group of people that are out there talking about both their Aboriginality or their indigeneity and also the LGBTIQ identity uh, and maybe you even have people talking about their disability status and things like that um, yeah but you know with this particular new article that I wrote which is what I sent to you um, you know it's really important that whatever uh, structures and systems are put in place for Indigenous people to be the absolute best that they can be to achieve exactly what it is that they want to achieve, that that is Indigenous-led. It's Indigenous-led, it's Indigenous-run. Um, the same as when it comes to Indigenous LGBTIQ people, that needs to be also run by not just Indigenous people but Indigenous LGBTIQ people who understand that lived experience of what it's like to be an Indigenous LGBTIQ person because it's... A vastly yeah. different experience being a, a you know an LGBTIQ person to being a straight person or being a non LGBTIQ person. So exactly. Um, exactly. It's imperative that we look at these intersections of people's lives and that we resource it accordingly. Absolutely. And like and that was something we were talking about prior to uh, when I started recording was we were talking about data collection and how we don't we aren't collecting enough information about um people's like intersectionality elements because like you i think through most things i am signing forms for or whatever it's a are you aboriginal or torres strait islander yes or no and then that's it yep so 
yeah, I know that um, Black, uh, Black Rainbow have contributed to some of these conversations as well and they do an amazing um, stuff across the country. And I remember coming across um, a roundtable that they did and they were asking um, LGBTQI mob, you know, what is missing? And then they were talking about that representation and almost the lack of that. We just don't have any data to, to be able to form any sort of uh, rationale to do more research or even to to have yeah to, to do more research but even to to have a reason to be putting more um, money and resources and things into identifying this because what we look at um, indigenous mental health for example it's still not being really what's the word I'm looking for holistic sorry holistic or intersectional in the way yeah. we look at it exactly intersectional. yeah exactly what you're saying so um, do you think by like how do you think that could improve like other than just asking more questions and having more resources is it systematic does it come from one place like where does it where does it start yeah I think um well I think something like a podcast like this they're really important places to have conversations because people's narratives are where the data comes from where the research comes from um it's it's important that we understand that there's you know, academic ways of doing things. So doing it within the academy, doing it through masters and PhD, which is really important from a data collection perspective, but all the knowledge is already there. People already have very solid, strong knowledge of what it's, what it is to be an indigenous LGBTIQ person or an Aboriginal LGBTIQ person, however people choose to identify. Um, I think the thing that we need to be aware of is that by utilising structures and systems such as academic academies, how then do uh, colonial systems and heteronormative systems use that data against us? And and I hate to be cynical about this, but um, the second that you put out information about particular groups of people, there will be certain groups of people that will take that information and transform it into something to be able to use to their advantage. So Absolutely. it's important that whatever is done, whatever research is done, is done in a way that is no harm. It's, it's not harmful for the people that have been or are being researched. Within an Indigenous research model, uh, it's really important that the people that we work with are collaborators. They're not the people being researched. Mm-hmm. They're people providing their narratives to be able to provide a, a bigger narrative on whatever it is that you're um, trying to get across. Um, it's really important that whatever stories and narratives are um, provided as part of a collaborative project, such as a research project, that it can't be used against the people who provide that information. Um, so anyone doing research needs to really think about that um, and how they can structure their research so that it provides that incredible strength uh, for their collaborators and those um, of similar identities. You know, it's really tough. Um, it's a really tough space and it's a space where not many people are currently walking in there's a few incredible indigenous queer researchers um and i'm sure that you'll get some more people on your show uh, who are doing absolutely brilliant incredible work um there's not enough 
And there's not yeah. enough people looking at the different elements of what it means to be an Indigenous LGBTIQ person. Um, we need people with transgender identities out there doing research on trans people. We need lesbians out there doing work, you know, from a lesbian standpoint. We need gay men out there doing research from a gay, gay man standpoint. You know, it's not enough, I think, just to lump us all into queer because um, there's not a lot of people that are comfortable with that term. Some people are, some people aren't. But being a lesbian and being a gay man are two very different life experiences and we need to be aware of the nuances of those identities. Completely. And I think it's um, something you pointed out before, like essentialism has, has been our biggest enemy, I think, not only as um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but as people that, as part of the LGBTQIA plus community is that's exactly right. Like they, like it's the assumption that it's the same experience when obviously it's so completely different um, no matter your persuasion. As I really like the way that you worded that as well. And then obviously um, the it's not even just the, the shade of your skin as an Indigenous person, it's also the way you've grown up and um, the way that you experience your Indigeneity is completely different to others and mm -hmm. the way that you're also perceived is completely different. Um, but I want to also tap into, you were talking before about research. Um, I remember you were saying that you're doing a PhD. Um, what's that about? Um, so I'm looking specifically at um, the experiences of Aboriginal lesbian women within the current social constructs of uh, Australia, um, which is a gigantic project and um, it's very complicated and um, it's interesting because, you know, I've got a lot of people saying, well, why aren't you just, you know, working with queer people and what? There's so much complexity. Um, for me, it's important. I think um, the experience of a lesbian person compared to a bisexual person compared to uh, a trans person or a pan person or a gay person, they're actually quite different. There's a lot of um, cultural complexity, even in the LGBTIQ community. You know, you would know mm -hmm. yourself, um, if you identify as a lesbian, there's lots of different types of lesbians, you know, diesel dykes, yeah. dykes, femmes, um, sport, sports loving lesbians, you know, book lesbians, cottage core lesbians. Like there's a whole range of different cultures. There is. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, there's more than enough, um, uh, there's more than enough to look at just within uh, a particular group for me it's about um having a particular standpoint i could never properly um represent trans people in my research because that's a trans person story to tell my standpoint is as a lesbian person um and i think that's really important i know aileen morton robinson speaks a lot about um standpoint theory um and I'm not going to go into it, but um, where you position yourself is really important. Um, what experience you're coming from is really important. And I would never want to speak outside of who I am and what I represent. I would never, you know, speak outside of my experience. You know, my experience as an Aboriginal person is very different to any other person's experience as an Aboriginal person. So it's, I think it's important that people understand that there's so much research that needs to be done. There's more than enough work for so many of us to do. 
And I think it's really, really critical. The more stories that are told, the more information we can put together, the more um, colour we can put into Indigenous LGBTIQ lives and, and histories. It's really important. Yeah, far out. I'm like so invigorated. Like I'm just, I'm ready to go out and like jump back into do another uni degree or something. Um, but like I know myself that I need to balance my life. But what you're saying is is 100% like I think exactly echoing a lot of other thoughts that are kind of around the community at the moment anyway. But what advice do you have for young mob, whether they be part of the LGBTQI plus community or even and non-mob as well, when when they're if they're thinking about doing some research or if they're thinking about wanting to contribute to academia and contributing to this conversation? I think best and foremost, I think it's really important to be aware of who you are, um, to, to be aware of um, your authority. Um, because of my particular identity and my connection or lack of connection to family, I don't have a hell of a lot of authority in particular spaces. Um, but where I do have authority is as a, a lesbian person who has an Aboriginal identity and a specific Aboriginal identity that maybe isn't as connected as other people's. But to me, that's still a, that's still an incredible strength because it speaks to the variety experience of, of Aboriginal people in this country. Yeah. I think knowing who you are and knowing where you want to go with your research, as in what are you hoping to get out of it, is really important. Who are you doing the research for? Are you doing it for yourself? Are you doing it for other people like you? Um, are you trying to solve a problem? Uh, are you trying to just gain more knowledge and investigate something you just have an interest in? I think for a lot of people, uh, all of those things are relevant. Um, I know for me, um, I was actually writing, uh, I was working with an Aboriginal health org um, as a senior clinical educator and I was trying to write a lecture on working with diversity, which was a component of the training package I had to work with. And I went to probably kind of, you know, the top book in the country on uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mental health, social and emotional well-being. And I searched the entire, I think there's about 700 pages and there is not one mention of the word queer, gay, lesbian, trans or intersex, not a single mention. So to me, that was a huge enlightening moment to say, if you don't exist in books, if you don't exist in literature, you actually don't really exist when it comes to data. So how yeah. do we put policies and practices and resourcing towards something that doesn't exist? So for me, that was the changing moment. I was actually doing a PhD in something completely different before that. And to me, that was a bit of a, a flag to say, no, nah, you need to do something different and this is something that you need to do because, you know, my professional background, uh, my identity, my experience in education, all of that stuff, um, I suppose, has provided me the opportunity to find this little tiny piece of information that's now become something and hopefully will be something in the next five or six years that will be... Um, out there in the literature yeah that's incredible and 
I'm um, so excited to see what comes out of this. And I'm, I feel even somehow more proud to be an Aboriginal person who also identifies as a lesbian, because I know that there's someone, you know, who shares that same identity out there, who's contributing to making, making our existence better or, or even known, um, which is really exciting. So thank you so much. For- there's so many, so many um, and so many that a lot of people don't even know about that are just doing the most incredible work day to day, you know, not even sort of sharing their, you know, sexuality or sexual orientation. Um, and I just, there's so much work out there for people to be doing and I really hope people get out there and and do the work. You don't have to be doing research. You can just write books. You can do podcasts. You can write magazine articles. You can paint and draw. And there's so many ways to express narrative and story, and we need all of it. Um, I just do it in one particular way. You do it in another. So just keep going with what you're doing. Amazing. Again, thank you so much for jumping on, and we're going to do a separate post here because I think you you mentioned maybe like I reckon – 10 or at least 12 different things so I'll get all of that information off you and we're definitely gonna um yeah shine a light on it and yeah thank you again yeah thank you thanks for listening to another episode of coming out black be sure to follow rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you listen on you can also go to instagram at coming out black b-l-a-k to follow and connect with the coming out black community See you next time.